get started. Father, I thank you for this book that we've studied and learned from. I pray that you will help us to end well today and glean truths from your word that we need. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, there was a man named Frank who owned a beautiful Labrador retriever, and Frank looked out his window one morning and saw that his uh, faithful, obedient dog was sitting there near the porch, and he thought he saw something hanging from the dog's mouth. And sure enough, he looked closer, and it was his neighbor's pet rabbit dead. Frank was stunned, not exactly sure what to do. His brain clicked through several options until he landed on one that seemed best, though it would require a tedious process. He gingerly pulled the rabbit from the lab's mouth, took the thing in the sink, washed it off, and then took it in the bathroom, pulled out a hairdryer, and spent several minutes blowing dry the dead creature until it looked nice and fluffy. That night, after it was dark and quiet in the neighborhood, Frank crawled over the back fence, slipped across the neighbor's backyard, went to the rabbit hutch, put the dead rabbit in the cage, shut the door, then went back in the darkness, hopped the fence, and breathed a sigh of relief. The next morning, there was a loud knocking at his door. Frank opened it, and to his surprise, found his neighbor clutching the dead rabbit. He was, he was steaming. Frank, we have a real sickie in our neighborhood. Really? Why do you say that? Well, my rabbit here died three days ago, and I buried it, and some guy just dug it up, cleaned it off, and stuck it back in the hutch. Takes a real sickie, Frank. <laughs> Sometimes we misunderstand situations, as is the case in our study today. <sighs> Anyways, I'm sure all of us have had, though, the painful experience of being misunderstood or falsely accused of something. And that's especially difficult when people believe false things said about you and don't bother to seek any kind of clarification. They simply assume what they heard is true. Many years ago at the start of our ministry at Lakeside, my husband and I experienced this where friends who we invested so much of our time and energy and love in uh, believed numerous lies, never communicated with us, never sought out the truth, but were just gone. And that experience was used by the Lord to teach us many important lessons that prepared us for the challenges of ministry. But it was very painful, very, very painful. And as we begin the study today, here we have an example of the danger that comes from people misjudging or misunderstanding the motives of other people. The result was almost the start of a civil war as this nation was at the start of their beginning of inheriting their land. I'm reminded of the danger of rushing into judgment without having all of the facts. Proverbs 18:13, he who gives an answer before he hears, it is folly and shame to him. That same chapter, verse 17, the first to plead his case seems right until another come and comes and examines him. So how many relationships have been destroyed within local churches, within families? all because of the failure to understand one another and to seek out the truth and communicate. Jesus made it clear in Matthew 7 that we are not to judge the motives of people's hearts. However, we are first to address the sin in our own hearts, as Jesus said, take the log out of your own eye, uh, before confronting others about unrepentant sin. Well, in our study today, we see the danger of jumping to conclusions without having all of the facts. And we see the importance of honest and open communication. There are dangerous consequences when we make assumptions about others without taking the time to find out the truth. So as we begin chapter 22, I just want to say 
I'm proud of all of you for hanging in there. And a long study in the book of Joshua, it's been wonderful. It's been challenging too. But I love how the first eight verses of chapter 22 is really a gracious commendation by Joshua to the soldiers. We read, Then Joshua summoned the Reubenites and the Gadites and the half-tribe of Manasseh and said to them, You have kept all that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you, and have listened to my voice in all that I commanded you. You have not forsaken your brothers these many days to this day, but have kept the charge of the commandment of the Lord your God. And now the Lord your God has given rest to your brothers as he spoke to them. Therefore turn now and go to your tents to the land of your possession, which Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave you beyond the Jordan. Only be very careful to observe the commandment of the law, which Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you to hold fast to him, to serve him. Uh, let me back up. Keep hold fast to his commandments to, uh, to serve him with all your heart and with all your soul. So Joshua blessed them and sent them away, and they went to their tents. Now the one half tribe of Manasseh, Moses had given a possession in Bashan, but to the other half, Joshua gave possession among the brothers westward beyond the Jordan. So when Joshua sent them away to their tents, he blessed them and said, Return to your tents with great riches and with very much livestock. And they returned home and departed from the sons of Israel at Shiloh, which is in the land of Canaan, to go to Gilead, the land of their possession, according to the command of the Lord through Moses. So as Joshua speaks directly to the men from the two and a half tribes from the other side of the Jordan, he basically is giving them an honorable discharge from the military. He commends them in verse 2 for having kept all that Moses had told them to do, as well as following the orders that he gave them as their general. These men had kept their promise to help conquer the land with their fellow uh, soldiers. It had been seven long years that they had been separated from their wives and children. Their homeland had already been secured and settled on the east side of the Jordan, and at last it was time for them to go home to their loved ones. They had been, they had been in countless battles side by side with the rest of the men from Israel. They had fought well. They had served their people with honor. And they, had commended, they are commended here by Joshua as they kept all that Moses said to do, and they had listened diligently to Joshua as well and not forsaken their brothers. Joshua uses the term rest in verse 4, which refers to the completion of the conquest of the land. So these men had fulfilled the commitment they had made and were going home. And I love verse 5 because it is such a wonderful admonition by Joshua. And it has simple application for each one of us as well. It's a short but passionate plea by Joshua Observe the commandment of the Lord, love the Lord, walk in all his ways, keep his commandments, hold fast to him, and serve him. These same commands are seen throughout the scriptures, and every believer is to follow this directive. Having just commended the soldiers uh, for their great service for the people, now they're reminded of the importance that they follow God's word and not forget it when they go home. The Jordan River and the Rift Valley would separate them from, and from their brothers. Joshua was concerned that this distance and separation might cause them to drift away from their worship of the one true God. So in verses 7 through 9, Joshua blessed these two and a half tribes, sent them home with the spoils of war to be shared with those when they got home. And they returned home with, as we read, a great deal of livestock, silver, gold, bronze, iron, and clothes, all from the spoils of war. 
So with all the goodbyes said, the men made their way home to Gilead, which simply means the east side of the Jordan. And they had to feel great about being commended by Joshua for their faithful service. And I see in Joshua, we've learned so many amazing things about this man. But here again, we see him as an example uh, that he commended his men and let them know that he was grateful for their service. How often we can only think of the negative things to say and fail to find the good in what others have done. We need to let people know they are appreciated. And having just been the beneficiary of this, I can say it's a great encouragement. That brings us to the symbolic act on the eastern uh, tribes and what happened in verses 9 through 11. When they came to the region of the Jordan, which is in the land of Canaan, the sons built an altar there by the Jordan, a large altar in appearance. And the sons of Israel heard it said, Behold, the sons of Reuben and the sons of Gad and half-tribe of Manasseh have built an altar at the frontier of the land of Canaan in the region of the Jordan on the side belonging to the sons of Israel. As these soldiers had uh, taken leave of Shiloh and they headed for home, they likely were remembering that miraculous crossing before they had the conquest in Jericho. And it appears that some sense of isolation from the other tribes began to be a reality to them. It wasn't just a river that separated them from the rest of their countrymen. There were mountains on each side rising up to 2,000 feet. And the Jordan Valley in between those mountain ranges was some areas five areas, some areas 13 uh, mile stretches between. So this was a very pronounced boundary. And it likely added fear to these men that as they left their brothers, they would be permanently drifting apart. So as they pondered what could be done to have some type of symbol of the unity between them on both sides of the river, they wanted to remind everyone they were all the children of the promise. So they decided to build a huge altar that could be seen at a great distance away. And this was simply to serve as a reminder that they also belonged to the nation of Israel, that they were one with. But this brought the threat of war. In verses 12 through 20, it was reported that this altar had been built. And when the rest of the Israel heard about it, they immediately gathered themselves at Shiloh to go up against their brother in war. The altar was thought to be a presumptuous act by these two and a half tribes. Shiloh was to be the place of central worship, and that is where the tabernacle had been placed. And as you recall from Exodus 32, the men from all of the tribes of Israel were obligated to go up to Shiloh and worship three times a year. Sacrifices were to take place only at the appointed place given by the Lord, which was Shiloh at this point. Based on this, the Western tribes saw the building of this altar then. They assumed this was an act of rebellion. They were to be one people, have one altar, one faith, one God, not worship wherever it was they felt like it. In one sense, the people uh, so distressed about this happening was a, a good sign uh, because they were concerned about unfaithfulness. They knew from what had happened with Achan that even one person's sin and rebellion could impact everybody. Sin not dealt with could bring judgment to all because of the unfaithfulness of a few, and it would not be tolerated. So they may have rushed to judgment, but at least they were zealous to honor God and his truth. They did not want to compromise. They referred to the building of this altar as rebellion against the Lord in verse 16. And they were accusing these two and a half tribes of unfaithfulness, rebellion, and already turning away from the Lord. 
All of the nation feared the judgment of God because of the action taken to build this altar. But in verse 19, they come, they make an offer that, you know, if you want to be on our side of the land, we'll make room for all of your tribes over here. They were serious about dealing, though, with supposed sin and doing so quickly, unlike the situation with Achan where he had things hidden in his tent unknown to others. To be sure, the majority rushed to judgment, and a wrong judgment at that. They were instantly ready for civil war. However, the delegation sent to confront these tribes chose to first communicate, thankfully, with words before taking action. There's a novel idea. So the defense of the eastern tribes is seen in verses 21 through 29. The delegation of Phineas and the leaders of the ten tribes were about to see how wrong their accusations were. Instead of responding with anger, the two and a half tribes... Uh, speak with honesty and sincerity as they deny having any rebellion against God. They invoke God as their witness in verse 22 as they swore twice by his three names, the name El, Yel, which means the mighty one, Elohim is another name for God, and Yahweh is the Lord. El speaks of his strength, power, and his authority. Elohim portrays God above every human God. And Yahweh is the name associated with the covenant relationship God had with Israel. So in ex, uh, we see the men respond by telling the others they did not construct this altar to offer sacrifices. And they call for God's judgment on them if they're not speaking the truth. In verses 24 and 5, they go on to explain that the geographic separation of their people and the effect that this might bring on the future generations, that was the reason behind them building the altar. The motive is stated so that your sons may make our sons stop fearing the Lord. That's what they were concerned with. They fully understood the laws concerning Israel's worship, and their newly erected altar was not intended to be a place of worship, but rather as a witness to all the generations that they had the right to cross the Jordan and worship with the rest of Israel at Shiloh. Their concern for the spiritual welfare of future generations was a good thing. However, God had ordained that all Israelite males go to the sanctuary three times a year, as I mentioned earlier. If they had done this faithfully, they would have preserved the unity of the tribes spiritually and politically. We know the downfall that will eventually come to Israel uh, will come when they do abandon the true place of worship. And we know when the kings come and all that's coming down in the future, other places were set up in defiance to God. Well, that brings about the reconciliation of the tribes in verses 30 through 34. So when Phinehas, the priest, and the leaders of the congregation, even the heads of the families of Israel who were with him, heard the words of the sons of Reuben and Gad and Manasseh, it pleased them. Today we know that the Lord is in our midst because you have not committed this unfaithful act against the Lord. Now you have delivered the sons of Israel from the hand of the Lord. So the ten tribal representatives were satisfied with the explanation that they heard, and they believed that God was in their midst, and they believed they had not committed a rebellious act. The delegation then brought the report back to the rest of the Israelites uh, on the western side, and they all rejoiced that they did not go to war with their brothers. And the name of the altar was Witness, because it became a witness to their explanation. So God chose to put this whole story in the account of the capturing of the promised land and the distribution of it as well. The story seems to serve as a great illustration of how to live in harmony with others. We learn from the 10 tribes the importance of never being willing to compromise the truth, 
but we also see the importance of gathering all the facts as well as not judging people's motives by circumstantial evidence alone. We must gather all the facts and not react in quick judgment with emotionally charged perspective. I mean, the guys who jumped on the horse, they're ready to go and go, you know, kill off their brothers who just got their accommodation for a good discharge. There must be discussion on problems that is honest and open with an attempt to clear the air and bridge the gap to have reconciliation. Such meetings must be done in a spirit of humility. Paul reminds the Galatians in chapter 6, verse 1, Brethren, even if a man is caught in any trespass, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, looking to yourself lest you too be tempted. And we see in this account another important lesson to respond with calmness and gentleness when wrongly accused. I mean, the two and a half tries didn't say, are you guys out of your minds? What are you doing? Why are you accusing us? You know, they answered calmly and gave an explanation. Proverbs 15.1, we all know by heart, a gentle or soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. So we see the example of the right response today. In our study of the book of Joshua, we are given so many wonderful truths that will save us from many unnecessary conflicts, which comes to each one of us. We need then to apply this to how we deal with conflicts with the person we're married to, if you're married, with your children, or other family members, or friends, or church co-workers. Are you someone who judges rightly or rashly? Are you willing to confront sin and error? Do you first look at your own heart and address your own sin before you speak to somebody else? I only wish that all the conflicts, and I've been a part of many as an outside observer through the years, all the conflicts I've seen through family members and church members that could be resolved with open honesty, with good listening, with communicating, with uh, an awareness of his presence, what a difference it would make in the lives of families and church families. How different life would be in families if they resolve conflicts and church families doing the same. So a great example here in this chapter. Then that brings us to chapter 23, where Joshua gives the first of the last addresses to the people. As Joshua realizes that death uh, is soon to come for him, he gathered the Israelite leaders to give his final words. He had to be getting close to 110 at this point. His message involved a negative word as well as positive. As Joshua remembered the Lord's instructions to him from chapter 1, verse 8, remember this book of the law shall not depart out of your mouth, shall meditate on it day and night. Now he warns the people to obey the law of God. He also reminds them of the dangers of intermarriage with the pagan people in the land. And he gives positive statements uh, we'll see in the next address in chapter 24 as well. But this probably took place at Shiloh some years before their conquest and distribution of the land were complete. Well, or afterwards, they had made the conquest and distribution. So God's faithfulness to Israel and their responsibility to it. In the second of the third assemblies that close out this book, uh, we see the emphasis on the necessity to be loyal to Yahweh in order to stay in the land safely. An aged Joshua addresses Israel through her leaders in this last will and testament. 
In chapter 23, we see the development of this section as Joshua gives an argument to them to continue to be true to their God. In his charge, Joshua reminds the people of God's help. For the Lord your God is he who has been fighting for you. He also reminded Israel of their part before God. In verse 6, he reminds them to be very firm, to keep and do all that is written in the law of Moses. Live a separated life from their idolatrous neighbors. And he makes it clear how dangerous it is to intermarry and associate with them and become involved with even saying the names of their false gods. But you are to cling to the Lord your God as you have done this day. They were to be diligent to love the Lord. And Joshua's worst nightmare, nightmare was that after all the success they had known on the battlefield, that Israel might actually lose the war by becoming conformed to the heathen nations around them. And this is why he forbid contact and intimacy with the enemy. Joshua could envision, envision the dangerous path ahead for Israel were they to backslide and not even realize how far they were slowly drifting away from God. And spiritual compromise is like that. It's very gradual. It's very deceptive as well. It is happening today in the hearts of many of us. When we compromise even of the, in the smallest ways, that leads the way to compromise down the road in bigger ways, which leads to that downward spiral. And unless one stops and repents and turns from their sin and obeys the Lord, they are adrift and out of fellowship with God. There is an immense danger when we ignore our conscience as the Lord puts his finger on different areas of our lives as he convicts us of our sin. And when we don't respond and we don't repent and we don't turn from that sin, it leads to a hard and calloused heart. Out of this great concern, Joshua warns the people that the temptation would be strong to forsake God and to accept the attitudes of the people around them. The result of such compromise would be that God would no longer drive out their enemies, but they would stay in the land and ultimately ruin Israel's inheritance. These Canaanites that remained among them would be a snare or a trap to entangle them. And all you got to do is keep reading in Judges, keep reading actually the rest of the Old Testament. And that's what happened. As a result, there would be misery and trouble that would increase until the people of Israel would be dispossessed from their own land. They, would not re they could not remain neutral. And just as people today, you cannot be neutral when it comes to God and his word. You either choose to believe who he is and what he says and to obey that, or you choose not to. And ultimately, when you choose not to, you continue on your way to basically be serving yourself. In verses 14 through 16, now behold, today... I'm going the way of all the earth, and you know in all your hearts and in all your souls that not one word of all the good words which the Lord your God spoke concerning you has failed. All have been fulfilled for you. Not one of them has failed. It shall come about that just as all the good words which the Lord your God spoke to you have come upon you, so the Lord will bring upon you all the threats until he has destroyed you from off this good land which the Lord your God has given you. So as Joshua speaks, uh, as a man about to die, he hopes his words are going to have a great impact on them. Again, he reminds them of God's absolute faithfulness to keep every promise to them. He is the same today, faithful to keep his promises to us. Joshua emphasized to the leaders the fact that Israel's greatest danger was not 
a military threat, but rather the moral and spiritual threat from within. And then we have the final charge by Joshua in chapter 24. And this took place at Shechem, which is where Abraham was first given the promise by God in Genesis 15, or rather 12. Joshua begins by identifying the Lord God as the author of the covenant with Israel. And then he reviews the blessings in the first 13 verses as he speaks again of God's faithfulness to Israel from Abraham to God delivering them out of Egypt to the success of conquering the promised land. It is God who now speaks when he's the one who says, I took, I gave, I sent, I plagued, I brought, I delivered. God did it all. Anything great that's ever happened with Israel is because it is the power and grace of God. The conquest, the deliverances, the prosperity was all because of his mercy and not because of their strength or their skill or their ability. And isn't that exactly the same today for each one of us? Everything we have, everything you ever accomplish that's good is only because of his grace and mercy in your life. James 1.17 reminds us that every good and perfect gift is from above. And what do you have that you did not receive from the Lord anyway? One author said this, whether studying the Old Testament or the New Testament, we are reminded that we are not where we are because of a long, wise, and godly heritage. We come from rebellion. Individually, we are children of wrath. After we are believers, we must look at others who are still under God's wrath and always say, I am essentially what you are. If I am in a different place, it is not because I am intrinsically better than you, but simply because God has done something in my life. End of quote. So there is no place for pride. In verses 14 through 21, Joshua again talks about their responsibilities before their God. Israel must fear Jehovah and serve him. They must choose who it is they're going to serve. And then he makes that very well-known statement, which I'm sure many of you have hanging on a wall in your home. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And the people answered in verse 16, Far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods. But Joshua again drives home his point in verse 19 that God is not to be worshipped or served lightly, and that willful sin will bring severe consequences under the law. Again, the people respond to Joshua's words, affirming that their desire is to serve the true one true God. He keeps hammering home this point in verse 23, that they must put away the foreign gods that are in their, in their midst. So there must have been some who were secretly practicing idolatry. So Joshua demands they remove and destroy any false gods. Again, the people confirm their desire and the commitment is to serve the Lord. There is no room for mixed allegiances, really, when it comes to God. A choice for each one of us has to be made. This is not just a choice for Israel. Every individual person who has ever lived has to choose whether it's going to be, as for me, I will serve the Lord or not. Either worship and submit to God or continue in the worship of the idols of this life. And I don't know whether it's money, materialism, beauty, comfort, worship, uh, sports, home, furnishings, clothing, children, grandchildren, health. All these things can become the idols of our own hearts. And if you have made any of these things something you think you have to have in order to be happy in this life, then that is your latest idol. 
And you can't serve God with a pure heart when your heart is already devoted to someone or something other than him. So in verses 25 through 28, we read, So Joshua made a covenant with the people that day. Believing the people to have a sincere heart, Joshua renewed the covenant and wrote down the agreement in the book of the law of God and spoke of a stone being a witness of what was spoken that day. The people were deeply impacted and they were determined to obey God as they went their separate ways that day. After this, Joshua died at the age of 110. The greatest tribute to his leadership is found in verse 31. And Israel served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders that survived Joshua. What an amazing legacy he left for them to follow. In verse 29, Joshua is called the servant of the Lord. He was buried in his inheritance in the hill country of Ephraim. His leadership and his influence on the people guided Israel in their worship of the Lord throughout all of his life and the lifespan of the men he actually influenced. And the last verses of this chapter close the book with the burial of Joshua, as well as finally the permanent burial of Joseph, who had asked you know, that his bones be taken up when the Israelites left Egypt. And Eliezer the priest, as well, a contemporary of Joshua, was buried in the land that God promised Abraham and his descendants. Well, I know that I have learned a lot from our study in the book of Joshua. I hope that the impact of this study remains with each of us. We don't just go away and it's gone. Be careful of compromise. Be careful of secret sins in your heart because they will harm you and they will harm the ones you love. Make sure you fear the Lord rather than people. Stay true to the decision you have made to serve him and him alone. My prayer is that each one of us have the same affirmation as Joshua had as a 110-year-old man. As for me and my house, I will serve the Lord. Regardless of what others around you may do, will you faithfully serve the Lord and not quit even as you are weary? Will you still seek him and serve him even as you age? And from today's lesson, will you be careful in your assumptions that you make about other people and what they've said or done? Will you solve problems by going and communicating? What a comfort to know that God is the same God who kept all of his promises to Israel and to Joshua, and he will keep all of his promises to us as well. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this book. I thank you that you've included it in the canon of Scripture, and it's, as we know from Romans, that all Scripture has been given to us for our encouragement through um, our studying it, that we have examples and reasons to have hope and encouragement. And I pray, Lord, that as different chapters that we have studied, maybe particular things have stood out to the individual ladies here. Lord, I pray that we won't soon forget. I pray that you will keep reminding us of the things that you have taught us in our study this semester and that we would be women of obedience. And Father, I don't know the heart of all the women here. I don't know if there are women here who have not made that decision to turn from their own way and turn their lives over to you with confidence and faith that your death on the cross was payment for their sins personally. I pray, Lord, that you will work in the heart of anyone here who has not come to that place, that they will make that decision and stand with men like Joshua, be determined to obey you and your word, and choose to follow you. In Jesus' name, amen. 
So you can go back and find a place at the table for